Maikako and Piali. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Varying Viewpoints. I am your host, Alicia Nani Reyes. I am Kanaka Maoli, which means Native Hawaiian, and Mexica, meaning Aztec. I'm also a John Smart Summer Scholar intern at the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice, and Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. I'm speaking to you all today from Lenny Lenape homelands, which are also the same lands Rutgers University occupies. So it's important for everyone, Native and non-Native, to always situate yourself to land and recognize the first peoples of the land who have been here since time immemorial. So this will set you up nicely for our topic today, which is land acknowledgments and its usage within academia slash higher education. Um, our guest today is Teresa Stewart-Ombo. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Teresa Ombo. Um, I go by Teresa Stewart-Ombo in my writing, just to acknowledge my father um, and all his sacrifice and, and uh, commitment to my education. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here on the podcast, and thank you to Alicia, for the invitation um, to speak with you all about land acknowledgements. I'm joining you all from Northern San Diego County, which is shared territory between the Luceno and the Kumeyaay nations um, who are indigenous to Southern California. I myself am Tongva and Luceno. And so my people are indigenous to the Los Angeles basin and to Northern San Diego County, um, where I'm actually calling you from. So it's really a great pleasure to be um, on my homelands and being able to talk about acknowledgement and um, practices and protocols around this really in vogue and popularized practice. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, I'm also an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, which is located on Kumeyaay territories on the um, ancestral village of uh, Makulahui, um, which I can talk about a little bit um, as well when we get into the podcast more. Um, but it's a pleasure to join you all um, and talk with you all about land acknowledgments. Cool. So great to have you, Dr. Stuart Ombo. Um, I actually first learned about your work back in 2020 because of the Land Grab Universities Project. Um, your scholarship regarding land acknowledgments and, lab, and land grab universities, one of them that comes to mind was your article, um, Beyond Land Acknowledgement in Settler Institutions with Dr. Wayne Yang. Um, during my time as a master's student and attending a land grab university, it was nice to really read your work talking about settler institutions and their moral obligations to serving Native communities. So I just definitely wanted to add that in there. So with this Varying Viewpoints podcast episode, I wanted to emphasize your work so that people can really learn more about land acknowledgements, how higher education institutions go about land acknowledgements, your thoughts about these settler land acknowledgements as an Indigenous person, especially since working in academia, and how we essentially can move beyond them. So what does that sort of look like? So to start off, I wanted to ask you, um, kind of, I guess, giving some context to land acknowledgements, can you really explain, I know you did in your um, research paper too, but the cultural significance of land acknowledgements as a pre-colonial practice. Sure. Um, and so as I get started and start to talk about this, I, I do think it's really important to make a recognition that I'm just one person. And these are my perspectives that are often shared with other Indigenous people, 
or allies um, and um, you know uh, their perspectives are varying um, and so you know this is just my perspective on it and uh, it represents the perspective of a few other people I also think it's really important to recognize that you know the thinking that comes into this conversation is really um, is really learned and inspired and motivated from other indigenous scholars um, who have really criticized this work, um, especially indigenous scholars like Chelsea Vowell and Hayden King, who are First Nation scholars in Canada, where this this practice is being really like hotly criticized as a move towards reconciliation. And so I, I can't really take credit as this being my own idea or my own thought. And I also co-author with Kei Wen Yang. Um, and so we kind of come together to generate ideas around land acknowledgement in the US. Um, but of course there's many people who have opinions on it. And if you were to just Google land acknowledgement, um, it would be very, um, you'd have a ro very robust and very rich um, database of information and perspectives from Indigenous and non-Indigenous scholars. And so um, in our article, Beyond Land Acknowledgements and Settler Institutions, we talk about this, um, I mean, it's not necessarily a dichotomy, but we talk about the differences between Indigenous land acknowledgements and settler land acknowledgements and something we really try to discern in our paper is that indigenous practices and protocols around uh, land acknowledgements or, or, or protocols of recognition uh, are very different than what we're seeing happen in public spaces or uh, higher education institutions in particular. And so um, what we try to do and what I always emphasize to people when we're doing this practice is as indigenous people, um, we've always had practices and protocols of recognizing each other. Um, and so I, I always give the analogy of thinking about visiting someone else's home. And when you come into somebody else's home, you announce yourself, <laughs> you knock on the door, um, you might bring a gift. Um, you wouldn't do things that are disrespectful, like put your feet up on their table or lie on their sofa without any sort of permission or, or, um, or blessing. And so we try to make that analogy and that comparison for people now so that they understand that Indigenous people have always had practices and protocols that are deeply rooted in uh, different types of Form and forms of diplomacy for coming into other people's territory and making that recognition. And so, you know, there weren't, uh, as we see them today, there weren't really strict boundaries or borders around our territories. Um, and we didn't conceptualize land as property in the same ways that settlers do. But we did have an understanding of people's places of origin and their territories and the rights and the responsibilities that they had for caring for the land and our non-human relatives in those spaces. And so when we traversed our lands and came into other people's territories, there were particular protocols around recognizing that this isn't our territory, recognizing that these aren't our lands and asking for permission, say, to fish or to hunt or to gather in those territories, or uh, a simple practice or protocol around um, announcing ourselves as we enter into somebody else's territory or village in this case. And these practices have been sustained 
since time immemorial um, is something really important to recognize. And so I always gesture people to look at Kanaka Maui protocols at, at different public events, right? This is a protocol that's not, you know, it's contemporized in various ways. We're not static people, but it's a protocol of invitation and announcing that's deeply rooted in traditional practices and customs. The same can be said around Maori people and how they have very, very strict protocols of uh, invitation to open up uh, particular events. Um, In Southern California, we also have similar protocols around entering somebody else's home and giving them a proper welcoming. And so all to say, Uh, Indigenous land acknowledgments or Indigenous acknowledgments are protocols that are deeply rooted in our relationship with place and our respect for each other's lands and territories and homes. And they're deeply rooted in protocols of diplomacy that really extend beyond what contemporary land acknowledgments are doing. Right. Thank you. I feel like that's so important, too, because now that with land acknowledgments being such a social justice practice, um, I notice a lot of people who don't really even understand where does a land acknowledgement come about. This feels very reactionary, but yeah, it does have very much indigenous, you know, roots and the practice isn't new. So thank you for sharing your perspective on that. So now being in this pretty much settler state, how would you explain these land acknowledgments are being used in a colonial society? Yeah, so I think that, you know, in the research that I've done with Kim Wen Yang, and I also have research that I'm doing with Teresa Rocha Berdahl to analyze these statements, um, we tried to look at the genealogy of protocols. Um, or of, of this practice and how it's been taken up across the globe. And so, like I was saying before, Indigenous protocols, recognition and acknowledgement are deeply entrenched in our understanding of diplomacy and reciprocity and respect and relationship with land. And in other places like Canada and like Australia in particular, there have been decades of social movements to really advocate for recognition and inclusion by First Nations or Aboriginal people in these parts of the world. And they've become more commonplace practices. And what Wayne and Teresa and I have found is that uh, maybe it's institutional isomorphism, maybe it's a popularization or some sort of invoke practice, but what we're, we're noticing is that we're importing from Canada and Australia in particular this practice that is deeply rooted to an Indigenous practice um, in very uncritical ways. And by that, I mean, in the U.S., something that we're doing is we're starting to publicly uh, read a statement that um, is often done in an uncritical way that simply recognizes the indigenous peoples or the lands of which an event is taking place on. And we don't really think about the broader or deeper implications of what it means to acknowledge a people or a place or how it has been in recent times connected to these larger social movements around sovereignty and self-determination, inclusion, and, and civil civil rights. Um, in general, now I would say that it, it's become somewhat of a trend 
where settlers, for lack of a better word, because I understand that that phrasing is um, contentious um, when we think about settlers of color and and building solidarities with people who have been racialized and marginalized. Um, But settlers are um, engaging this practice of simply announcing at the beginning of of an event the lands that are being occupied, either the lands or the peoples from those lands. And so this is a practice that's being taken up and you um, see it often in different public events, but especially within institutions of higher education. Um, Everybody has different intentions of why they're doing a land acknowledgement. And so some people see it as a, an attempt at, uh, you know, reconciling with history and the past and um, as a as a mechanism for telling the truth, um, other people see it as a decolonial practice. And so this is the the intention um, really varies on who is staying the statement. Um, something that we found in our work is that in general, statements don't really materialize any sort of commitments or resources to indigenous people. And I think that this is where the critique around land acknowledgement acknowledgements as a practice are starting to be more developed um, and where myself and my colleagues are trying to really push institutions to think deeper about what does it mean to recite a statement at the beginning of an event and acknowledge Indigenous peoples um, and and their lands, um, but really not have any sort of commitment to them or really not trying to address any sort of inequities or structural or systemic racism, but really just engaging this practice as a rhetorical practice. And so that's a little bit more on our thinking around land acknowledgements. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Um, so now I kind of wanted to understand, you know, being at, in higher education and having this being a common, you know, usage, this my acknowledgments being common usage for like DEI within higher education. Do you feel like, especially in your research or just being a faculty member in higher education, do you really see higher education institutions knowing the lands their institutions reside on? I I would say no. I mean, and you have to remember that the U.S. higher education system is the largest education or higher education system in the globe. It's the most diverse. And so when we think about numerically the number of institutions, uh, higher ed institutions across the U.S., you know, there's probably about 3,000. And so if you were to start to quantify and to think about, you know, which institutions are actually engaging the practice of acknowledgement or really trying to unpack and understand whose lands they are on and the origins of their institution and how they're historically tied to different social or or political events. Um, I would say that numerically, there are very few institutions that are actually engaging land acknowledgement as a practice um, of trying to understand whose land their institution resides on. And so I say this from the point of doing an analysis of um, land grant institutions, or as we refer to them as land grab institutions. Myself and Teresa 
Rocha Berdahl, who's at the University of Washington, Seattle in sociology. We received support from the Spencer Foundation to analyze land acknowledgement statements at 1862, 1890, and 1994 land grab institutions. Um, and in our data collection, we found that there is an absence of land acknowledgement statements. And so if the land grab institutions represent a small fraction of higher ed institutions across the broader U.S., it's safe to say that these institutions aren't really taking up the practice or really trying to understand whose lands their campus is on. Mm, that's interesting because you would think with social media, you seem like it seems like this is a common practice, but yeah, it seems like it's just very a small percentage of these institutions that are actually even beginning to do this work. Yeah, I think we also have to be really conscious of like the the states um, that institution. I mean, the higher education is across all of the U.S., but um, of course, but you know, there's states that are more conservative um, that aren't engaging the practice. Um, we also found that there's like regional differences. And so not only thinking about the political leanings of those states and those counties, but we've also found that institutions that are located in like more urban areas have a tendency of having land acknowledgement statements, whereas those that are in more rural areas actually don't engage the practice as much as the those in urban spaces. And so there's also like a lot of like um, geographic and social contexts that are necessary and and examining when we start to think about how this practice is being engaged across all of U.S. higher education. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I guess within the institutions that you have been witnessing that have been, you know, trying to make land acknowledgements a standard practice for their institution, do you happen to notice leaders that are involved, any stakeholders, are they including Indigenous voices and communities? I, I think that's a little bit difficult to say. Um, I think institutions are trying to do a better job of engaging communities. And so land, I would say, um, you know, in the work we've done, we've noticed that land acknowledgement practices started being picked up in the U.S. around 2015, um, 2016. And a lot of the people who have discussed their participation and writing statements for their institutions have been Indigenous people. And so by and large, institutions lean on Indigenous faculty, staff, and students for writing these statements for them. Some of these people, you know, in the long run, they've had regrets for, for supporting the institution in this way because they see how it has become very superficial, that it's become this rote gesture that's really empty and it hasn't materialized any meaningful change for the people who are being named in the statements, but also for the communities on campus. We're starting to see a little bit of a shift um, now, you know, we're five years into like the uptake of this practice and we're starting to see institutions engage local communities in the drafting of those statements. Uh, it's far and few between, but there are institutions that are doing that. Uh, UCLA is a really great example. My institution, uh, UC San Diego, is another good example of engaging the community in the process of asking them what they want said or named in the statement, um, what, what they want expressed. 
I think that the challenge or something that we're seeing with institutions starting to engage Indigenous people and communities in the drafting of these statements is, um, you know, thankfully, you know, all the scholarship and the thinking that's coming out of Canada and Australia has created this consciousness and this awareness of essentially empty promises or rhetoric around these statements. And so in engaging the communities in writing statements, some people are saying, we will help you write this statement, but what are you going to do for us? Or how is this going to be reciprocal? What commitments are we going to write into this statement? And how are you going to be accountable to not just acknowledging dispossession, but also trying to I guess, amend for it or atone for it in certain ways. And so we're starting to see this tension between Indigenous communities and institutions come to the surface a bit more when we're starting to think about statements. And so that's kind of a little bit of context around what it's looking like now in the U.S. Yeah, that's interesting, especially for UCLA and UCSD, you know, really having community engagement, because I would say for me at the University of Nevada, Reno, being a land grab university, they definitely did. It's almost just consulting with indigenous groups, but it's definitely um, settler refusal. It's really just, oh, we're thanking them for, yeah, it's very empty statement where it's just thanking all the tribes in northern Nevada and even southern Nevada, just thanking them for allowing the institution to be on their lands and it's definitely slow to the point now where now the indigenous communities are being very vocal about, you know, you need to step up and really help us because we're not going to be in this relationship anymore if it's just going to be empty promises. So it's interesting. I'm really glad to hear that from the UC schools. Yeah, I think there are a few other, um, the Alma Mutsin up by UC Santa Cruz is another really great example of a community-engaged process, right? Alicia, what you're saying is there's often this like consultive process where it's just asking Indigenous people to sign off on the a statement. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the issue with consultation, right? Is like we, we consult with you, but we don't necessarily have to accept or include your perspective or your opinion. It's just this superficial gesture of like checking a box and saying we did it. Um, I think something people are being more critical about and what I try to push for in my scholarship around tribal community and university engagement is um, this idea of like we need to engage the the communities um, that we need to respect tribal sovereignty we need to have government to government relationships as institutions that are representing the state Um, we need to have that engagement and we can't just pick up any indigenous person off the street who doesn't have that that authority or that that um, they're not that that aren't elected as spokespeople um, or leading organizations. We can't just choose somebody um, to approve our statement that doesn't have that doesn't represent the community, right? We need to have more deeper collaboration um, and not consultation anymore. So I guess in general, what is your position on land acknowledgement? You know, being an indigenous person in higher education, like what 
what like what is your viewpoint on all this oh i have a lot of viewpoints um <laughs> I, I, I guess like are they needed are they not needed how really should they be said yeah you know, things like that yeah <laughs> no and in, in the last year i guess i would be hearing i i've had the question of like well if land acknowledgements are superficial and if they're road and empty and if it's just rhetoric then maybe we shouldn't be doing it and people asking me, like, do we do, should we still do land acknowledgements if it's problematic? Um, and, you know, which is an interesting question. Um, but I think we absolutely need to engage the practice of acknowledgement. Um, a lot of conversations that I've had with colleagues and friends who talk about, you know, upending and dismantling structural racism. Um, we talk about how, you know, a part of of dismantling and and addressing these dis, dismantling uh, systemic racism um, and upending these structures a part of that is also recognizing that we are a part of settler colonial society we are on the lands of indigenous peoples who are still here who are still vibrant members of our community, but have been dispossessed and disenfranchised in many ways so that the society can exist. And so if we really want to address the inequities and the violence and the harm that people are enduring, a really critical component of that is recognizing whose lands we're on. And so I think that absolutely we need to engage this practice and this process but there are better ways of doing it um, over others. And so something that I always impress upon people is um, the importance of recognizing, like in engaging the process, not expecting an Indigenous person to provide you with all the information. We need people to actually do the work, right. um, do the research, do the reading, do the exploration necessary and understanding whose lands they're on. Um, and this is not something that can be just handed to you or given to you very easily. I think that there also needs to be an acknowledgement of the tensions that you are experiencing as an individual who is engaging this practice. Um, and a, a recognition that, you know, you're, you're learning, that we're all learning. And then something that Wayne and I write about in our article that doesn't come from our thinking, it comes from the thinking of Hayden King, is a, something around in these statements and in your in your um, engagement with these statements is a thinking and a commitment to what this statement actually compels you to do. And so adding that into your statement, um, I, I was just recently at an event with the William T. Grant Foundation, and um, they offered a land acknowledgement statement and recognize its limitations. And they also recommended to those people that were attending the event for them to give financially to a few Native organizations in the region as a mechanism for, for strengthening uh, or fortifying tribal sovereignty and self-determination. Um, and so that's something that I'm seeing people do more of is recommending organizations that you could contribute to, uh, make a monetary contribution to. I've seen other people recommend, you know, visiting local cultural centers, um, supporting Native artists and their artwork. There's many ways, um, but the intent there I see is really 
giving back to the people that are being named in the statements. And so those are some thoughts I have around continuing to engage the practice and recognizing that it's imperfect um, and that we're all learning and growing, but there are very tangible, very practical and material ways that we can actually uh, move beyond the, the statement itself, right? Move beyond land acknowledgement and really give to Indigenous people. Right. No, I agree too. Just really, yeah, moving beyond that statement, you know, like exactly. I feel like I've seen that, especially with this holiday that just passed. Well, not even our holiday, but, you know, the for the 4th of July, you know, having that just passed. And a lot of like, I've, I've seen a lot of Native um, leaders in the community, you know, saying like rent is due, like it's really time for Natives to step up and, you know, settlers, even if they don't see themselves as settlers, they really should be giving their financial resources to these organizations because, you know, it's not just for Native gains, like some people think that, but it's really just to better the community in general. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the re- recent or just past uh, U.S. holiday um, it brings to surface a lot of tensions. Uh, I don't celebrate the holiday. I don't do anything for it. Um, and I'm not on social media all too well, but I, do, I did see some people, um, you know, saying something that you can do um, for, for this U.S. holiday is return Indigenous peoples their land. Um, right. This really mm-hmm. t- this uh, this growing movement around land back. Um, a lot of people might see it on social media um, or you can follow the hashtag. And so just I and I think, you know, these particular movements in relationship to land acknowledgement are thinking you know more broadly and more deeply about how, how do we move beyond just the statement? Uh, a statement really is oftentimes a form of absolution or a way of like assuaging settler guilt and making people feel less bad about their complicity and complacency in settler colonialism. Um, And I think that these calls by indigenous people of rematriating land and repatriating ancestors and revitalizing languages and, and there's so many other um, movements and calls um, in indigenous communities are really ways that we can think about moving beyond just a statement that makes us feel better about ourselves and really think about, you know, what are the needs, what are the issues, what are the concerns, what are the dreams of indigenous people and how can we support them or, or rectify um, some of the the challenges that we've contributed to um, when we think about our larger society. Yeah. And you've already kind of touched on this, you know, land back, um, really um, repatriation, rematriation of land for indigenous peoples, I guess, especially for anyone who's listening, you know, people in education, like even just faculty staff or even educational leaders, what do you feel like are some steps in the right direction to forward justice to indigenous peoples, communities, and students? I mean, there's many things that at university leaders, uh, faculty, staff, and students can do. Um, I, I think that there is a lot of ignorance about indigenous people by, again, for lack of a better word, settlers. 
And so something that people can do at a very minimum is to educate themselves about Indigenous people. Um, you know, Rita, I was on another um, talk with a, a mentor of mine, and they said, you know, is reconciliation, is it really feasible to say it starts with reading a book? But I do think that um, there's many ways that people can educate themselves about Indigenous people and not put it the labor on Indigenous people, but actually do the work. Mm-hmm. And then I think that um, when we think about higher education institutions and, and these various um, roles that people occupy while they're within the institution, students, staff, faculty, leaders, there's many things that each group or individually or collectively can do. Um, you know, if you're a student or student or a student organization, how are you um, reaching across the aisle and building solidarities with other Indigenous students? If you're a faculty, are you including Indigenous perspective in your classrooms? Um, and not just readings about Indigenous people, but readings by Indigenous people. In my graduate program, I'm always very happy to share with people I never took a single class where Indigenous voice was not included. Um, Every class at least had one reading by an Indigenous scholar, and that's very rare. I also think if you're a faculty and you have Indigenous students, also really thinking about how you're not just representing them in the curriculum and making sure their voice and their perspective are included, but also how are you mentoring um, Indigenous students um, who as the research tells us, who are going back to their communities, um, right? And so it's it's much bigger than just uh, having a reading um, in, a, in a course. If you're a staff person, um, I think like, how are you collaborating with uh, indigenous organizations or units within your campus? Or how are you uh, collaborating and partnering with Indigenous organizations or Native nations within your local area. For me, like my heart is always with like this larger obligation of institutions. And so um, I think there's a lot of things that students, staff, and faculty can do. But what I'm most interested in is thinking through and actually very tangibly making changes within the institution. And so I think that institutional leaders have a lot um, to do, a lot of work to do, and many commitments that have been um, neglected towards Indigenous people. Native students are underrepresented. Native faculty are underrepresented um, numerically um, and, and proportionally when we think about the professoriate. Um, if you were to quantify resources on your campus, I'm, I am confident that uh, most of the campuses have under-resourced Native academic or student support programs. And so I always impress upon institutions and their leaders this need to do an internal examination because I honestly believe, with the exception of a few institutions, doing a small assessment of your enrollment numbers your retention rates, your resources and programs for Indigenous students, that they would be severely underrepresented and under-resourced. And a lot of the times administration have the argument that, well, you're a very small community, so you need less resources. 
or or this issue around enrollment is a larger systemic one. But I, I don't think that that is really reasonable logic by the institution and why we shouldn't be so concerned and focusing attention on increasing enrollment or giving more resources to academic and student support programs. Um, if these programs are incredibly under-resourced, you know, because of proportions um, of enrollment, I think that institutions actually should throw more weight and more resources behind them to ensure that we're increasing uh, student enrollment and and supporting student retention and developing research opportunities and collaborative opportunities, whether curricular or co-curricular with Native programs, um, organizations, Native nations that really will strengthen tribal sovereignty and really fortify indigenous futures. So I think those are some of the things that institutions can do. But my, again, my concern is really how are the institutions as a whole strategically addressing some of the needs and the desires of Native communities. Right. And I guess especially you being like in this work and seeing some things be in the works, like what are definitely ways that you see Indigenous sovereignty in higher education for you? Or like, you know, being in this work, what are some things that you're definitely like, yes, this is where we need to be going? Um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about the work that I'm doing at UC San Diego, because for me, and yeah, for me, it's very exciting. Um, and so when I, when I mm-hmm. came to you, I'm sorry? Oh, I said yes. It's always exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when I came to UC San Diego, it was 2017, and I was doing a postdoc. Um, and I, with the idea that I potentially would stay at the institution, and I did. 2019, I started my appointment as an assistant professor. Um, and so when I came to the institution, I understood and knew that there was a very contentious history. Uh, between the Kumeyaay Nation and the university um, because of a history around repatriation. Um, And so for those of you that aren't aware, repatriation in in policy um, or in U.S. policy can be uh, known as the Native Americans, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which legally obligates institutions receiving federal funding to return to to inventory to notify and upon request return the remains and objects of cultural patrimony to native nations and so um, there was this really long history at UC San Diego about 40 years of litigation between the Kumeyaay Nation and the university. And so when I when I stepped into the campus, I knew this history. I knew that there was tensions. I knew that there was a lot of hurt, um, a lot of pain that the community endured um, at the hands of our campus. So I, I, I knew like when I was jumping in that as the, the sole California Indian faculty, the sole... Uh, uh, education, indigenous education faculty that I would be getting involved in those sort of conversations because um, because I desire to engage the community in work. And so, you know, this is 2019 when I first start and, you know, not so many months later, we enter um, into lockdown because of this global pandemic. And so over that year, I was still engaging in in conversations with the community in different ways because they were 
in need of PPE, um, in need of different uh, COVID response grants um, and resources because a lot of their their operations were being shut down um, or, or closed because of the lockdown. And so, but they were still needing to um, provide educational services or, or different resources to community. So we continued this conversation and um, it, it allowed me to start a project with representatives from the Kumeyaay Nation. And so a lot of the people from the Kumeyaay Nation that I was working with um, saw me give a presentation on the history of the land that uh, UCLA currently occupies. This is a project I started in 2016. And the community members um, attended the event um, on Zoom. And after they approached me and they said, can we do a project like that at UC San Diego? The history of UCLA was, and this project was in conversation with the Land Grab University report that came out of High Country News. And so, you know, they had this, this history with the institution, but they also had this incredible desire to start to unpack these temporal layers around the history of campus. And so, uh, for about one year, uh, we were in conversation and started to identify a few more community members to assemble a research team. And so in 2021, um, we officially convened a research team that is a majority Kumeyaay community researchers. It includes myself and one other California Indian scholar who's an educational historian. And we we launched what we're calling the Unmapping UC Mokkuluhui Project, um, which is kind of a riff on uh, UC San Diego, um, but we're reclaiming that space um, and the land, if you will, um, by invoking the, the village name that UC San Diego currently occupies. And the um, unmapping component really pulls on indigenous feminist um, uh, cartographies or, or, or geographies um, and, and the theories that are embedded in that discipline, um, scholars such as Mashana Goldman. And so what we're doing is we're doing a spatial and a temporal unmapping of the institution. So really starting to pull back these layers. Um, but the thing that's really unique about this project is that it's community driven. It was it emerged from the community and they're dictating and determining the, the research questions and the methods, the different sources of data and scholarship that we're citing to rewrite the narrative of campus. And so it's a five-year project that we're doing together. Um, and the goal ultimately is, or, or for the first two years, is that we will rewrite the history of the campus together. Uh, year three, our goal is to teach a class that will be a part of the core curriculum. And we envision this class about the history of campus um, to be something every freshman and transfer student like feasibly could take so that they understand the true history of the campus and its lands. And then um, in years uh, four and five, what we envision is shifting the project is, and no longer kind of telling this counter history 
um, but really starting to unpack in the archive and, and look for different histories around the cultural and the spiritual significance of the village, not for the institution encountering that story, but actually for the community um, as a way of reconnecting the Kumeyaay to their lands. Um, and so there's, I, I think that there's more there's deeper implications for the work that we're doing, um, but this is kind of a, a project that we've designed together and that we've like, you know, very, we're in the second year right now. And so we're still um, unpacking and uh, rewriting this historical narrative. Um, but I think that there's many more aspects and avenues that the project can take. And it relates to land acknowledgement um, because this is a deep study to look at the history of the lands that the campus is on, but also it takes a, a bit of a left turn from uh, acknowledgement practice in its basic sense. And it really moves beyond land acknowledgement because uh, the ultimate goal of the projects in years four and five is to really start to examine the, the lands and how the community related to the lands, what they use the lands for, where village sites are located, where, where they had ceremonies and, um, you know, different really critical cultural elements of um, and spiritual elements and significances of the particular place um, really moves us beyond land acknowledgement because that information, that knowledge will go directly to the community and the research team will be able to dictate, you know, who and how has access um, how they'll have access to that information, but it will never really be for the benefit of the institution. It's really for the benefit of the community. Right. And that really goes into the indigenous sovereignty. Like that sounds like an amazing project just to really put community first. And yeah, it's like basically allowing them to say what they want to do and how it will better them. And also putting the institution, like not in the first place there, you know, they're being a servant to the communities and really driving what they want to do and how they want to be present in this space now. That's so awesome. Do you really see this being like a feasible thing for, you know, other colleges and universities to do with their local tribal communities? Um, I, I, I would hope that other campuses would take up the um, opportunity to do this, um, this work. Um, and really allow the projects to be dictated, right? There's the, to be dictated by um, the community. Um, it, it's it's such a hard thing to generalize, right? When we're thinking about indigenous communities across the globe, but specifically in the U.S., um, indigenous communities are so diverse. Um, there's hundreds of federally and non-federally recognized Native nations, and so you know, what we, what we're able to, we've been able to, and what we hope to be able to accomplish at UC San Diego, um, it's really context specific. Um, what we were able, what we could do in California is, you know, is very different thinking about the historical context of the state. And so what, if you were to think about uh, institutions in Oklahoma or Michigan, or I don't know, New Jersey, you know, those contexts are really critical and thinking through the feasibility of doing the study. 
but I, uh, this type of study, but I would hope that institutions would open themselves up to that possibility of really doing a community-driven and community-engaged project that foregrounds tribal sovereignty and really places the institution in the background. Um, is that possible? I don't know when you think about institutions. Um, they always have to there always has to be like a mutuality, right? Like our, our collaboration has to be mutually beneficial. And I think with the unmapping UC Makuluhui project, it, re- it really is an incredible project, um, but the intention is always for the community. And there m- might be benefits to the institution, but that's not the sole purpose or the, the driver of the particular project, right? Yeah. And I guess definitely this really just brings it all together with, you know, how do we move beyond land acknowledgement? Definitely, I want listeners to really understand that, you know, getting local communities involved, whatever community does mean for like within a geographic area, definitely centering Indigenous communities, no matter what. Yeah, there's, I have a wonderful mentor at um, a neighboring institution, California State University, San Marcos. Uh, She's, uh, her name is Dr. Jolie Proudfit. And years ago, I heard her say the expression, not about us, without us. Mm -hmm. And I've seen other people take up the expression, um, but really at the heart of it is saying, you know, we can't do work about for or with Indigenous people without including them. And oftentimes institutions, they want to address gaps or issues or any sort of problems that they're seeing with Indigenous communities. They want to do it for them and they don't want to do it with them. And I think we can't, as, as institutions of higher education, thinking about the political and racial climate of our country in this very moment, we can't continue to operate in those ways. Um, it's incredibly paternalistic. It's really rife with a lot of racial discrimination. Um, it, it, it takes us all the way back to really um, labeling Indigenous peoples as incapable and inferior individuals who can't make decisions for themselves, right? It's just incredibly racist. And I think institutions can no longer do work for Indigenous people. We have to do work with Indigenous people. Indigenous people need to be at the table and are incredibly capable of determining the futures they want for themselves. Exactly. And I do see that work happening, I guess, especially even just at University of of Nevada Reno like I it's slow but I definitely am hopeful for the future I know I'm just coming in as an early scholar within my work so I'm hoping like it will get better with time or just faster (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think I mean and if you think about the history of higher education I'm right it predates the U.S. um, or what is now the U.S. The history of higher education institutions are really entangled with indigenous dispossession and exploitation in many forms and ways and extraction, um, especially of uh, of resources, uh, resource extraction. And so higher education institutions are really entrenched in 
indigenous dispossession and 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 um and this has been centuries um that these sort of relationships are entangled um in these and these contradictions and complications and so it is going to take just as long if not longer to undo the harm that institutions have done to indigenous people and so I'm very hopeful. Um, I like to stay optimistic and I like to think that we are moving in the right direction. You know, sometimes you move that needle a degree um, and you feel like as an indigenous person and within an institution, you've like really gotten a win. Um, But then some event will happen on your campus and it's like you move three degrees back. Um, But I think as long as we keep moving. That's what's most important. Um, It's going to be a really imperfect process. There is this really long history of harm and violence that that Indigenous people have endured at the hands of institutions. But, you know, from my perspective as an educator, I really believe in education. um, And I remain hopeful at what higher education and uh, higher learning can can mean in Indigenous communities. So I, I just hope that we continue to move in the right direction and, and recognize that there's constantly going to be tensions and contradictions while we continue to move forward. Right. I agree with you. And thank you so much for talking about all this because it really inspires me and me going into now my doc program, like, yes, I need this, you know, to really push me <laughs> in the right direction. Yeah, I'm happy to talk with you. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your insight on this subject. Um, is there anything else you would like to add, like before we close out? Should there be? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, any last thoughts? <laughs> um, I, I think on the topic of land acknowledgement, I just would encourage listeners to continue to engage the practice and recognizing that is that it is imperfect and that we all who engage land acknowledgement as a practice are continuously learning and i just really impress upon people the necessity to move beyond um, rhetoric and really think very practically very tangibly um, very materially how we can support tribal sovereignty and self-determination, self-reliance and self-education. And so I, I really encourage listeners, you know, if you're thinking about this practice, um, you know, continue to work with it and don't abandon it because there's a lot of contradictions and uncomfortability. Being an ally to indigenous communities is, um, it requires you to reconcile and grapple with a lot of your complacency and things that you never really were critical about. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be comfortable. You should constantly feel uncomfortable with the, these sorts of practices. Um, and so I just really encourage people to continue to engage the practice, even when they're uncomfortable. Right, exactly. Because that's the biggest opportunity to grow when you're uncomfortable. Yes, Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, Well, yeah, this pretty much wraps up our episode of Varying Viewpoints. Thank you so much for listening.